For me, I think even as an English major, poetry was not something I was a fan of. In fact, I was very afraid of it. And I focused my studies on the novel form, for example. But it was really later on when I started going to poetry readings when I felt poems could be accessible to me. And maybe it is that idea of performance and hearing it and maybe being closer now to song, right? Okay, there's no music being played, but being performed, I can maybe hear that musicality or something. So going to poetry readings for me really personally made poetry more accessible and I crave it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our most recent episode of Bookish Casual Club. And today, I'm actually very excited because today's episode, we're going to talk about how to read poetry, which is a question I get a lot, actually, from folks like, oh, you know, I wish I understood poetry more. I wish I could enjoy it a little bit more. Well, we are here to talk about how you can and share some pretty awesome poems in the process. So yeah, let's just dive right into it. So poetry. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> it's what's Good for stuff. dinner. <laughs> it's what's for dinner. It does feed the soul in a sense. I was actually just emailing with a friend of mine from grad school this morning and we were in the same writing workshop and you know, she sent us a poem, which I'll read later from her forthcoming book. But I asked her a question and I said, what would you say to a reader about like how to read this or any other poem? Like just curious to know. And what she wrote is that the poem itself is giving you the instruction on how to read it. And I thought, well, yeah, that's kind of like the gist of what I was wanting to say too to people is each poem will ask you to read it in a specific or different type of way. So, you know, I thought I would start us off with a poem to kind of engage us in that sort of, how is the poem telling us to read it? And it will kind of lead me to my point of the idea that, you know, to our listeners who are listening to this podcast or watching the podcast, essentially poetry is an act of listening, right? It's an act of deep listening. So the first poem I want to start us off with starts with that word listen. And the poem itself is called Song by Bridget Piggy and Kelly. Listen. There was a goat's head hanging by ropes in a tree. All night it hung there and sang. And those who heard it felt a hurt in their hearts and thought they were hearing the song of a night bird. They sat up in their beds and then they lay back down again. In the night wind, the goat's head swayed back and forth. And from far off, it shone faintly the way the moonlight shone on the train track miles away beside which the goat's headless body lay. Some boys had hacked its head off. It was harder work than they had imagined. The goat cried like a man and struggled hard, but they finished the job. They hung the bleeding head by the school and then ran off into the darkness that seems to hide everything. The head hung in the tree. The body lay by the tracks. The head called to the body, the body to the head. They missed each other. The missing grew large between them until it pulled the heart right out of the body until the drawn heart flew toward the head, flew as a bird flies back to its cage and the familiar perch from which it trills. Then the heart sang in the head, softly at first and then louder, sang long and low until the morning light came up over the school and over the tree and then the singing stopped. The goat had belonged to a small girl. 
She named the goat Broken Thorn Sweet Blackberry, named it after the night's bush of stars, because the goat's silky hair was dark as well water, because it had eyes like wild fruit. The girl lived near a high railroad track. At night, she heard the trains passing, the sweet sound of the train's horn pouring softly over her bed, and each morning, she woke to give the bleeding goat his pail of warm milk. She sang him songs about girls with ropes and cooks and boats. She brushed him with a stiff brush. She dreamed daily that he grew bigger, and he did. She thought her dreaming made it so. But one night, the girl didn't hear the train's horn, and the next morning, she woke to an empty yard. The goat was gone. Everything looked strange. It was as if a storm had passed through while she slept, wind and stones, rain stripping the branches of fruit. She knew that someone had stolen the goat and that he had come to harm. She called to him. All morning and into the afternoon, she called and called. She walked and walked, in her chest a bad feeling, like the feeling of the stones gouging the soft undersides of her bare feet. Then somebody found the goat's body by the high tracks, the flies already filling their soft bottles at the goat's torn neck. Then somebody found the head hanging in a tree by the school. They hurried to take these things away so the girl would not see them. They hurried to raise money to buy the girl another goat. They hurried to find the boys who had done this, to hear them say it was a joke, a joke, it was nothing but a joke. But listen, here's the point. The boys thought to have their fun and be done with it. It was harder work than they had imagined, this silly sacrifice, but they finished the job, whistling as they washed their large hands in the dark. What they didn't know was that the goat's head was already singing behind them in the tree. What they didn't know was that the goat's head would go on singing, just for them, long after the ropes were down, and that they would learn to listen, pale after pale, stroke after patient stroke. They would wake in the night thinking they heard the wind in the trees or a night bird, but their hearts beating harder. There would be a whistle, a hum, a high murmur, and at last, a song. The low song a lost boy sings, remembering his mother's call. Not a cruel song. No, no, not cruel at all. The song is sweet. It is sweet. The heart dies of this sweetness. So for our listeners, that's a long poem, but if our listeners want to hear more about like the analysis of the poem, the poet Nicole Brown does a great one on YouTube. You can just kind of search for it. But you know, that poem starts off with the idea of like, listen, right? And then it goes into kind of like a gory, gruesome, sort of almost like a fable type of thing about this goat beheaded by these like boys who are playing a prank. Um, and usually what a lot of like people say to me, I don't know about you guys, but like they ask like, what is the poem about? You know, like, what is that poem about? What's going on? I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But when you hear the poem start off with listen, you can tell that there is uh, and she says it twice, so the poet writes it twice, you know, but listen, here's the point, you know, and it's this idea, and the poem is titled Song, you know, and it's this idea of what do you hear, you know, and I, we've talked about this theme before in our podcast, but what I really like about that poem is it challenges you to not look away from things, right, but then also see kind of like the humanity of it too, right? The boys thought they were going to do this prank, but it was much harder. She repeats that it was a much harder job, but they finished the job. And in the end, what haunts them is not the prank, you know, what haunts them is this thing that they have done, you know, and it's pulling out their own humanity, right? The sweetness of the song. And so to me, that like distills kind of like what poetry with the capital P does, you know, it reminds us of this song, the heartbreaking and dying of the sweetness of those songs, you know, mm. that at the core of every poem, I would argue if someone reads that really moves you, there is a sweetness to it 
that lifts it beyond just like kind of the darkness of whatever it is that's happening. So that's what I wanted to open us up with. And kind of, I want to ask you guys your thoughts about like, how would you read this or any other poem? This poem, it reminded me of like different movements, like in a symphony, because it started out one way and I thought it was going to be about this. I don't know why I was surprised that the poem turned to the girl and then it turned back to the boys. So it was interesting movement, like in terms of perspective or what the poem is addressing, Mm -hmm. but ultimately to then paint a picture of everyone who was involved in that, including the goat, right? Mm -hmm. And the tree and the school, like everything that was sort of, and it was like this slow, like painting of the event. And then you have the overall sense of the meaning or the song that feels kind of omnipresent, I guess, the the sound of the song, I guess. But yeah, it was the movement, like from the goat to the boys to the girl, back to the boys. It was really interesting to follow that. Yeah, I think that it's also important at how it sounded coming from you. And I think that because poetry is very much in your wheelhouse, an ability to attend to the words is a lot greater than for like your average reader, because I can imagine a reader going, it's just a goat. What is <laughs> <laughs> <a> goat. Uh, <laughs> and it was the girl's goat. And so, you know, people, when they approach poetry, sometimes they don't necessarily have enough of the figurative understanding of metaphors, of symbolism, of imagery. And so for some, I think people, the length of the poem, the breadth of the poem, the movement of the poem, the emotions of the poem, you have to enter poetry with a kind of openness, I think, mm-hmm. that I think you could do that with most writing situations. But I, I really think with poetry, you have to be open to rereading it again. And you have to be open to letting it sit with in ways that, you know, maybe a drama, maybe reading a novel, a short story, you have some immediate responses or immediate feelings because of the, the length or the, the subject matter of the, the story. But I think with that, with poetry that attempts to create these different movements, I think there's where sometimes readers just get lost. They see the images and they see it from a very literal sort of way. And I'm just thinking about my son. Why didn't they just arrest him? You know, like <laughs> they, they, they try to make resolution simple, but that's not the point of the poem. Mm-hmm. You know, the attempt to prank is fiendish and it's violent, but this is something about the humanity and everything. Yeah, I think there's like this sort of like implicit desire to like compare poetry and prose when they're reading and the experience Mm -hmm. of both are very different, you know, and yet I often hear people consider poetry as the same as like a song, right? Which is so weird to me. I mean, like Bob Dylan famously or infamously won the Nobel Prize for Poetry one year and the poetry community was up in arms. (laughs) They're like, that's a song, not necessarily a poem. And yet here's a poem that I just read called Song. Mm -hmm. Laura, I think you pointed out that like you observe that there are like movements first about Mm -hmm. the goat then turns to the girl. and It's almost like a first chorus, first type of thing, you know, where there are some similarities between poetry and songs, like in that both, I feel like are an arrangement of words and in order to evoke an experience or an emotion beyond maybe the literal meaning that's in the song itself, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, it's interesting to me that people have such a hard time with poetry, but when you put a melody to a song, 
you know, they can basically memorize the most random you know, like, combination of words. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That don't, that don't even necessarily make any sense. And yet mm-hmm. they're like, oh, but it makes me feel things, you know, yeah. and I would argue like poetry is asking you to do the same thing. And you're right, Kofi, like the idea of an open mind. How does one listen truly? Mm-hmm. You have to listen in a, with an open mind. So, yeah. And, you know, for a, a poem like this, like where it's long and it has movements and different perspectives in the first, let's say the first time I read it, or first time I hear it, I need something to anchor me, right? And I don't have to quote unquote, understand the whole poem the first time I read it, if that's even possible. But if there's a line or a picture or imagery or sound that catches my ear or my imagination, then I think there's an invitation for me to go back. And, you know, the whole idea of like, every time you read something, you might discover something different or hear something different. So I think the genius of this poem is when she says, listen, and then says, here's the point. I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. do tell, like, what's the point, (laughs) right? She's going to tell us, but she doesn't. I mean, right, you have to kind of work that out also through the poem yourself. But you get the sense that it's contained at the end, this idea that the song itself, that the poem takes its title from, is a song that had to come from this very, like, dark place but the song itself is so sweet Mm. it's not a cruel song Mm. the poem isn't actually about cruelty the cruelty of the goat though that takes most of the real estate but the poem actually is about the sweetness of the song it's about what is it broken sweet thorn blackberry you know like Uh the girl the girl and her beautiful goat and that's the song that is being kind of told i told laura this earlier i was going to read tennyson's for the queen and then i thought I don't want to read Tennyson. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not Victorian, I'm not, you know, but I do appreciate Al and what he brings to the table. Well, <laughs> that's Lord Al to you. Well, Lord Al. You know, I, I love it. We have a different relationship, so <laughs> I just call him Al Ten. Um, <laughs> So I settled on Larry Neal. And for people who don't know who Larry Neal is, he's the co-founder of the Black Arts Repertoire Theater and one of the co-editors of the anthology Black Fire with Amiri Baraka. I have one of his books. It's Visions of a Liberated Future, Black Arts Movement Writings. And it's pretty much a variety of things that traverse the 60s into the 70s. One of his characters, if you will, is someone called Shine. So I wanted to read two Shine poems. Shine goes to jail. There was no toilet to speak of, and they gave us old newspapers to wipe our asses with. There was only this running through the cell. It was flushed three times a day with water from a special pump. The water was mixed with pine oil disinfected. There is this cell. It's supposed to accommodate three men, but there are four of us here right now. Woody Neal from Georgia down around Atlanta. Silas T. Washington over here. He's near Titusville, Alabama. I know his folks. Blind Jack sitting there yonder with his guitar. Well, he from Florence, Tennessee, same as Handy. And me, I'm from everywhere. (laughs) So the thing about Shine is that Shine represents not just Black people or Black men, but just a particular character, like a trickster character that you would find in a lot of, you know, Black folk tales and things like that like John Henry or something like that. So shine touched by death's whisper. Gray trees and the song, oh, how we murder our sinews. 
the body's wrong by looming fear, the grim fantastic knife cutting the humid air in his throat. See how the jagged toothed murderer dances on the edge of his glass. I shine, say there is a putrid wind blowing through those sockets. I say we bear the death din as well as the cooing song of the lovers among the summer grasses. A demon memory that is those specters, those echoes, those persistent ancestor warnings and the magic we know we have lost and strive to retain, oh, singer. It's interesting because you were starting with song and I read these earlier and I thought, oh, this will be cool. But I think there is a kind of telling of a tale. And I think a lot of things with the Black Arts Movement poetry, especially is that they were trying to show an emotion as well as say an emotion and, you know, considering the context at the time, express it in its most <laughs> virulent way. And I think that the thing about Larry Neal, one, when I was in D.C., they used to have the Larry Neal Awards and I came up honorable mention, you know. So. <laughs> I didn't win. <laughs> someone thought I was worth mentioning. But I've always been fascinated with the Black arts movement and what their poetry means, especially as it bleeds into aspects of hip hop and aspects of, you know, sort of the Afrofuturism. And I think that there are something to be said about the genius of working within your tradition or working within the hopes and memories of what you believe are your traditions. And so I think that, you know, contrasting with your form you read, Sylvia, I think that one of the things that poetry does beautifully more than prose is dealing with the economy of language. Both of those poems are very short, but they mm -hmm. pack so much in them. And I think that's the beauty of poetry that sometimes readers don't appreciate as well. Yeah. And even though the Bridget Picking Kelly poem was long, and I really encourage our listeners to just look up the poems, these poems, and read the words as well, the way that the writers have composed it and arranged it on the page, that economy of language is also found like in the line as well. Yeah. You know, like where Absolutely. a poet chooses to break the line, where a poet chooses to repeat sounds, like in the Bridget Picking poem, like they heard the hurt of the heart, you know, mm -hmm. and you can kind of hear the musicality of that. And the sounds actually have a function. The musicality has a function. The language in the Shine poems, you know, helps to push the meaning of the poem beyond mm -hmm. a literal meaning. Right. So you can tell that there's something else going on. It's evoking that emotion. Yeah. So like Shine in jail, I'm from everywhere. I mean, mm -hmm. it's every Black man is in prison or every Black man experienced these mm -hmm. things or every Black person experienced these things in this context. So it does a lot, but you have to be, well, let me put it this way. Some poetry requires context. Yeah. <laughs> Some poetry does. Sure. And when you don't have it, it does become a struggle, you know, and I think we should be honest with that. But part of the struggle, I think, is the lack of openness, I would say. You know, you, you can't get an immediate reaction. You sometimes have to sit with it, read it again, come back to it. Maybe at a later date, you'll feel it a little differently. Right. Yeah. Different poems require a different energy, different amount of work. And there's a real difference in sort of reading or meeting a poem that's been assigned to you like in school. Somebody else chose this poem. And like of Lord course, Alfred Tennyson poem. <laughs> and I could also imagine, well, but if I don't know poetry or poems, how do I go about finding like and it is a is it is a process. For me, I think even as an English major, poetry was not something I was a fan of. In fact, I was very afraid of it. And I focused my studies on the novel form, for example. But it was really later on when I started going to poetry readings 
when I felt poems could be accessible to me. And maybe it is that idea of performance and hearing it and maybe being closer now to song, right? Okay, there's no music being played, but being performed, I can maybe hear that musicality or something. So going to poetry readings for me really personally made poetry more accessible and I crave it, right? And another thing is, I think we might have talked about this when we talked about Deaf Republic, the notion of reading a collection of poetry from beginning to end. And I think for a long time, I would do the, you know, flip through the pages and read one, right? Like and put it down and read another one. But now I've gotten in the habit of, with some poetry collections, just reading it, like open to page one and read it from beginning to end. And there have been a couple of collections that I read the entire thing in one sitting. But then, you know, you want to go back and read some of them more than once, obviously. And one of those was Adrian Sue's collection called Peach State. And it's about food, <laughs> but through food, it's about family and memory and immigrant family, but also very much Southern identity. Southern, I think she's maybe Georgia. I could be wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, well, that is the yeah, I, I think that's where she is now too. But yeah, the whole collection, I just sat down and read it from beginning to end. And I wanted to share two poems. And one is the opening poem, the first poem. And I think they kind of speak to each other as well. It's called Substitutions. And it took me a couple of readings to figure out the structure to understand how to read it. But what you said about, you know, a poem tells you how to read it. I, I realized it was in there. I just didn't notice it the first time. Okay, it's called Substitutions. Balsamic for Zengjing Vinegar. Letters for the family gathered. A quiz in art for many hands. Petty burglars for warring bands, a baby's room for tight quarters, passing cars for neighbors, lawn mower buzzing for bicycle bells, cod fillets for carp head to tail, children who overhear the language for children who speak the language, Virginia ham for Jinhua ham, and nothing for the noodle man. Calling as he bears his pole down alley and street, its baskets full of pickled mustard, scallions, spice, minced pork, and a stove he lights where the customer happens to be. The balance of hot, sour, salty, sweet, with which decades later you still crave a formula he'll take to the grave. I love that. Starting with substitutions and ending with something you can't substitute. Mm -hmm. Speaking of substitutions, this one is called, the title of the poem is, On the Recommendation That American Adults Consume No More Than One Quarter Cup of Rice Twice a Week. That's the title. <laughs> the rice plant drinks up arsenic, so show good sense and change your diet. Studies reveal where fields were cotton, southern states, more contamination. If your word for food is your word for rice, change your word for food or rice. Deem it a side dish. You can will it. Learn to love barley, amaranth, millet. Your grandmother in the nursing home sacrificed the foods of home in exchange for shelter. You can too. If rice was your child's first solid food, serve quinoa next then polenta, grits. Teach your rice cooker novel tricks. Mapo tofu may be strange on bulgur, 
but your parents always adapted dinner. If ghosts were going to wipe their brows in heaven, they would have done it by now. I feel like I should snap. I know, right? (laughs) So it's just so like close to home in Korean. The word for food is the word for rice. Like, so like my mom will say to me, did you eat rice (laughs) in Korean? Which means, did you eat, obviously. And, you know, like rice was the first thing I fed my kids. And it's just interesting. And the two poems talking to each other, the, the second poem comes a few pages later, but they're talking to each other in the sense that they're still on these similar questions or themes about substitution. I mean, rice hits home. <laughs> so and I, close. I, I feel like in both of those poems, kind of like in, I think in all the poems that we're talking about today is a sense of like, there's a sense of loss, like in the substitutions, like when you substitute, you know, balsamic vinegar for this yeah. like Chinese cooking right uh-huh. wine, you know, you're losing something, you're, you know, something is changing, but you also may be gaining something too. Sure. But yeah, it, it just seems like, and the things that can't be substituted, the noodle right. man pushing, you know, his book. And those flavors that you can only get like that one time and you'll never be able to substitute that or get that again. I think it's bittersweet, I guess. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's also really sad. But so So I think a collection like that one, it just, you know, thematically it speaks to me because they are things I can sort of like directly feel, you know, and I love food. I love eating. I love talking about food. And so that's, I think, another way when people feel like maybe poetry is not accessible. There's some aspect of finding that thing that's going to connect you to the poem because you're just personally interested in it, you know, and be choosy about what poems you open your mind up to, I guess. Right. With my students who often have like, don't have as much experience with reading a variety of poems um, than the ones they were maybe, you know, assigned in high school. I often like open up with some poems that you know, I think it's like a theme or topic, like food is one that's very popular with students. There's like a, a poem by Fatima Asghar called Old Country. It's about Old Country mm-hmm. Buffet. It literally starts off, Old Country Buffet, where my family's... <laughs> and it's really about the immigrant experience too, you know, the idea of plenty and what mm-hmm. makes you American and all this other stuff. And I think that's so true. Like there's a poem for everybody. And what's the access point for that? Mm-hmm. But you're right. Like Kofi, you were saying, like there are some poems that need some context uh, in order to like fully understand it. And I think that's okay too. I have an example and it's from my friend who I was talking about, whose collection of poems from which this comes will be released in September. And the collection is called There Are Still Woods. And it's a book of, I hate to reduce it to this, but it's a book of like eco poems. So poems about like what we've done to the earth. And this one's grounded in an Inuit myth of the goddess named Sedna. And it's kind of gruesome. I don't know why. I have like a theme of dismemberment today in the poems <laughs> that I'm reading. I don't know. Here's another conversational thread, dismemberment. But it's called Sedna, the Arctic Sea Goddess. The men fashioned their bitch goddess into a fat girl. Daughter of Anguda, creator god, angry dad. In every legend, your father throws you to sea. You cling to kayak. He cuts off your fingers. You drown. Your fingers become seals, walruses, whales, creature fingers sprung from sea blood. You leash your seals, hold back fish in your silky palm till the hunters hunger so much they send shamans to wash and comb your hair. Only a man's goddess would lose use of her hands. Only a man's goddess would withhold food in exchange for praise. No wonder you rage at the bottom of the sea. No wonder you explode with hurricanes when man's heat sends you to a frenzy and you shake your stump of a fist at dry land. 
So I actually had to read this poem several times too, to kind of get it. And had I not known that this was about a sea goddess, and this is actually a very common creation trope, by the way, creation myth trope, where the body of a god or goddess is used to create life. And in this case, her body is used to kind of create the sea creatures and the sea, sea life. And really, it's about the violence of the earth intertwined with the mm-hmm. violence against women, but that the violence then is turned into power for her, you know? So that's why she's saying only a man's goddess would lose use of her hands. <laughs> Whereas what we're seeing now is that mother nature is anything but powerless, but there's hope there too, that maybe we can imagine it a different way, imagine a different way forward. So yeah, I thought that was um, an interesting way to sort of look at the idea of what do we look for when we're reading poems and how are we, we drawn to that? Where's the humanity in it as well? I hope we didn't scare off our listeners. They're like, we're definitely not reading poems anymore. And, you know, I wish we could talk about this longer because I do have actually like more fun poems that, you know, we could read. But if you guys, our listeners or our viewers have any ideas of poems that you really like, please share them with us. You can find us on Facebook under Bookish, a casual book club. And you can email us at bookish at howardcc.edu. And you can listen to us on uh, dragondigitalradio.podbean.com. Yeah, that sounds about right. And there's so many different ways that you can access us. Thanks for listening and joining our conversation on poetry. And we really hope that you'll find a poem that is meaningful to you. Keep searching and keep looking. Or you can reach out to us and ask us for a recommendation. Keep an open mind. Keep an open mind. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.